following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Larger for Life, everyone's favorite podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. You know, here we are in early February, at least at the point of this being recorded. Some of y'all will hear it far later, but it's Groundhog Day. I don't know if the groundhog saw his shadow or not, if we got six more weeks of winter. Frankly, I'm not even sure what happened. What happens when a Presbyterian pastor sees his shadow? Stop being superstitious, Sean. <laughs> Uh, enough just, of this wizardry and devilry. <laughs> Wasn't there a uh, a meme that just came out? Was that uh, if the pastor sees his shadow, his sermon series continues for six more weeks? I think that's the one that I saw, yes. So I have not seen my shadow this morning. So you hopefully... Listen. You listen here. Some pastors cast a much longer shadow than others. So <laughs> just saying. I cast a much wider shadow than Uh-oh. others. oh <laughs> and you know, before we before we get into the the nuts and bolts of today's episode, we have a couple of uh, of shout outs and acknowledgements that we need to make. Uh, one is that well, we, we have the Hall of Fame, and I think we have the Hall of Shame. Let's put it that way. The Hall of Fame award today goes to Derek Bright, but in particular, it goes to Ashton Bright because here we are, and it is the Brights' tenth wedding anniversary and Derek is nevertheless in studio in studio so dedicated he is to the cause of catechetical podcasting she here kicked he is. him out <laughs> here he is in studio recording on the podcast on his 10th anniversary so hall of fame goes to Derek Bright but most especially to Ashton Bright yeah I asked her what would you like for your for our 10 year anniversary honey would you like to do the traditional 10 year gift or would you like to go on a trip she said I'd like for you to leave the house. So that's why I'm here. So the greatest gift you can give me is yeah. the absence of your presence. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, she is she is actually working herself. Uh many of you actually none of you probably know that she's recovering from a minor procedure. And um so she is resting at home and we're going out tonight to celebrate. And uh so I'm stuck here with these fellows. No place I'd rather be on my 10-year anniversary then in my office with these fine men what can i say <laughs> are you going to the golden corral later no shonies actually get after it get the after height of it. romance oh. and speaking of shonies that's a perfect spin you you would have no way of knowing that but that's a perfect segue into our other little bit of housekeeping we have a we have a few greetings you know we get fan mail from time to time uh usually it's just you know people buzzing my phone with text messages or things like that but every once in a while so we've got listeners from senior saints all the way down to the youngest of covenant children and this week we want to acknowledge and give a couple shout outs to some young covenant children who like to listen to this podcast if you can believe it we have children as young as eight and three that regularly listen to the catechetical podcast and ask their parents hey i want to listen in on mr nick and mr sean and mr derek and mr spin well, let's let's tu- let's tune it in. So this morning, we want to give Matt. a shout out and Mr. Matt. Well, that's well, we're going to come back to that. Don't you not worry, Mr. Matt. <laughs> exactly. We're going to come back to him. We're going to come back to him in a moment. And uh, so this morning, we want to give a good morning shout out to Little Anna Maria in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're glad you're tuning in. We're glad you're listening. And again, you tell your daddy to repent because we know what he did and you know too. And we also want to give a shout out to. Uh, Benjamin from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, that is my son, so special favoritism here, but he wondered if he might get a little greeting, a little hi-hello on this week's episode when we were recording, and I said, we can do that. So uh, you can tell how, how, how dorky we are in the Morris household because after the end of you know the evening's activities, after supper and family devotions and things of that nature, uh, kids are you know had their bath and they're getting ready for bed. If Benjamin has some downtime, as we're getting all the other kids situated, he will often ask if he can listen to Larger for Life uh, on the iPad or something like that. And so that's usually his 
that's his his indulgence towards the end of the night his his fun free time is to tune into larger for life and so i told him i said well one of these days we'll we'll do a guest interview with you son when you're a little older but in the meantime we'll give you a little shout out uh give you a shout out at the next time that we're recording so benjamin hope you're listening hope you're enjoying the show now the other thing we had to mention oh go ahead nick yeah just one more shout out and that's to brother uh, brother pastor perry mccall yes Um, you know we're thinking about you praying for you hope that you get to feeling better soon and uh lord willing uh, we'll be able to enjoy good fellowship all right brother take care that's right now you too can have a, a greeting and a shout out here on the Ledger Life podcast if you do the same that these other friends did and just send in fifty bucks to the uh, to the the home the house <laughs> account. It's that simple. Your your son gave you fifty bucks. He gets good birthday money, and he said, "Daddy, I just I want I want you to acknowledge me on the show. I want you to take Nana and Papa and Grandma and Pop Pop's birthday money that they gave me, and I want you to have it all just so you'll say hello to me on the show." I said, "Son, we can do that. That's no problem." Spin needs to put air in his bicycle tires, so that's what that that's what that funding will go to in the larger for life uh, monetary account. Well, it's a unicycle, so uh, very cost effective. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, shout out in Arkansas. Was was that a James Ritchie reference? Anna Maria loves the show, and I'm going to go oh, see wonderful. Anna Maria, Lord willing, here in a few weeks at the end of February. I'm going to get to see her in person, and I'm told by her father uh, that she's a big fan of this podcast. Who loves Shonies? So, you know, lots There's of the, little inside baseball. But James Ritchie, uh, lover of Shonies and Larger for Life, we love you back. That's right. Um, That's the thing for which he needs to repent. We know it. He knows it. His daughter knows it. Everyone knows it. But he won't do it. Yeah. Well, question 38 today. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Nice, easy stuff. I mean, me being kind of the buffet connoisseur that I am, my eyes were way bigger than my stomach. And I thought we were going to take... 38 to 40 today, but Sean, why don't you kind of introduce us to question 38 here, and uh, yeah, I mean, if, if, if time allows, I definitely want to circle back to the eschatological and typological um, significance of Shoney's in the American South. I think um, that's a worthwhile conversation to have. Oh, there's an eschatological significance. It's called judgment, but we'll get back to that in a little bit. So, friends, we're at question 38 here in this particular episode. If you have been listening along in order, you'll know that we have moved from theology proper, and we spent the last several episodes working through those questions, uh, which have really served as a bridge between theology proper, doctrine of God, to now we're getting into Christology, doctrine of Christ, and then, of course, soteriology, doctrine of salvation after that. And so those several questions on what we might call covenant theology— really served as a useful and wonderful bridge to get us from theology proper here into Christology. So we've already covered the covenant theology questions, a covenant of grace and Christ as the mediator of the covenant of grace. And so here we are now plunging feet first into Christology, the doctrine of Christ. So let's think about this. Question number 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be God that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation." That's a marvelous question. I could almost sing the doxology just after reading it out loud and and having no discussion on it. It is so chock full of gospel. It is so chock full uh, of of devotional ruminations on God's grace and the working of his salvation in his people. So let's just work through this a little bit. Guys, why was it requisite that the mediator, mediator should be God? So it's talking about this mediator, of course, picking right up where questions uh, 35... 36, 37, right where they left off, thinking about the covenant of grace, how that covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament, then under the New Testament. Well, who was this mediator? Well, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked in previous episode about him being uh, God and man in two entire distinct natures, one person forever. So there's that hypostatic union, this profound mystery, the God-man, uh, fully God, fully man, and yet one. How does this work? All right. And so now 
as we're delving into the Christology section of the Catechism, it's helping us break that down and understand that even further. So 38 is asking, this mediator who is the God-man, why was it necessary that he be God? Next question is going to take the other half of that. Why was it necessary that he be man? But we're thinking about the God part here first. Why was it absolutely necessary? Why was it requisite, as the Catechism puts it, that the mediator should be fully God? Well, the first part of it says, so that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. So right away, question 38 takes us to Calvary, doesn't it? Right to Golgotha, as Christ is there bearing our sins in his body on the tree, as Scripture puts it. If merely a man was to hang there and have the wrath of God poured out upon him, there's no man that could bear it up. No man could endure it. No man could withstand that. And so the Catechism is helping us realize here that, well, the the godness of the God-man sustained and kept that human nature from sinking, from being uh, obliterated under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, because he would have just been wiped away, uh, vaporized, you might say. And so uh, that there, there's at least one, one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, one aspect uh, that the question is reinforcing here, why the godness was utterly essential to uphold the manhood uh, as he as he executed salvation for us, as he bore our penalty in his body on the tree. Nick, brother, it looked like you were leaning in uh, with something to say here. You know, I think it's important for us to make a comment that uh, Westminster's not implicitly teaching some kind of annihilationism here, okay? Right. There's right. a distinction about the suffering of Christ and the bearing of the wrath of God that juxtaposes itself from the unique suffering of the individual sinner in hell, and that is the the fullness of Christ's suffering, is that it's not just for one person, it's not for two two people, it's for a definite number of the elect, okay? And that's a significant thing. It's far more than what the individual person ever would or could endure in hell. Also, it's unlimited. It's poured out without um, without any restraint, uh, to the end that it would be satisfied or the justice of God satisfied through the pouring out of wrath. And that's a very different thing even than whenever we talk about a person being punished in hell, in hellfire, in eternal torment. Uh, so that, that that's just to, to make a, a distinction. And so it is right for a Christian to understand that on the cross in three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever could in hell. Uh, it's a different experience, or I guess magnitude, mm. of the suffering of the just wrath of God. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, good. it's a distillation, we might say, um, a distillation of the hell that all of God's chosen people deserved was concentrated and satisfied and suffered by Jesus Christ as he was on the cross. And this is an interesting discussion uh, for another time when we talk about the descent uh, of Christ, did he uh, he descended into hell? What do we mean by that? There's two popular understandings of what that means: is that Christ descended into hell, as it were, he suffered the torments of the hell that we deserved upon the cross, or that he descended into uh, Sheol, that is the grave. Right, his body was committed to the grave. But there's something here that you see this emphasis upon infinitude infinite wrath of God. How could a finite creature, right, because Christ's human nature is created, how could that, in that human nature, how could he fully drink infinite wrath Mm -hmm. of the Father and satisfy his justice were it not that his divine nature is upholding the human nature to drink the depths and drink drink the dregs of of God's wrath. So I kind of have explained it before. The Father's hand is is, is coming down on the human nature of Christ, and his divine nature is holding up his human so that it does not altogether destroy it, right? But that it, it fully receives the full weight of the Father's wrath, and yet um, he's not utterly destroyed, but his humanity, you know, Christ is going to rise from the dead uh, on the third day. And this is interesting, too, where we have 
in this question, and I want to run this by Derek to see if I'm kind of tracking with him because I'm I'm seeing uh, interpenetration or perichoresis. This is mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity, one and another. Because in Hebrews 9.14, which is one of the proof texts that we'll get for question 38, it reads, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, Derek, the Holy Spirit, I think by virtue of his unity with the divine nature of Christ— there's a sense in which the, the the spirit is also preserving Christ's humanity and, and bearing it up to take the father's wrath. Is that a fair um, inference to draw from maybe the Hebrews nine fourteen text? Would, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair inference to draw for sure. Um, because I do think, obviously the Holy spirit is active in the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. Um, and, um, I do think there's discussion to be had about when Christ was on the cross and, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that could get into a whole rabbit trail, um, and, and some difficult topics, but yes, uh, especially by virtue of inseparable operations and, um, so yes, I do believe that that that's fair. I, I I hesitate to get too into the weeds on that. Um, you know, maybe um, Nick might want to pick up on that or something um, in more detail. But uh, I, I think I think that's fair. I try to get you into the weeds. It's it's one of my favorite I know. games. I'm trying to pull back a little bit. <laughs> Let me. I will say this. Let me go into the actual question of um, the uh, the catechism. It reminds me. It reminds me of this quote from Francis Turretin in volume two. I believe it's volume two. Let me I loved him in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> wow. Um, volume two of, uh, of his institutes. It says this. It's kind of a long quote. It's a paragraph here. Okay. So, but just bear with me, listeners. By Francis Turretin. Read Francis Turretin. He's the best. All right. It says, for since to redeem us, two things were most especially required, the acquisition of salvation and the application of the same, the endurance of death for satisfaction and victory over the same for the enjoyment of life. Our mediator ought to be God man to accomplish these things, man to suffer, God to overcome, man to receive the punishment we deserved, God to endure and drink it to the dregs, man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming man to become ours by the assumption of the flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the spirit. Both natures therefore should be associated that in both conjoined, both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. Um, I love that quote because it's picking up on, well, the really the catechism's picking up on what probably what Turton is saying, because Turton came first that, um, you know, it, it is necessary that our mediator be both God and man. Um, it cannot be any other way. He had to be God. He could not simply be a man because a man could not endure, could not apply, could not even suffer um, what God um, required. And um, so it's important that we have a thorough view of the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ in one person. Um, I think it's important that we understand parted of exegesis as well. Um, that we'll get to that later on. Um, Zoom but, type, uh, Eric. Parted yeah, of exegesis. Right. Bless you. Um, for a shorter quote, William Perkins can't go that quoting William Perkins says for in his human nature, he wrought our salvation by suffering, dying, uh, satisfying and in his divine nature by giving strength unto his humanity to endure the death of the cross and perfect his satisfaction. Um, you know, so, so yes, it's his human nature that, that dies, but he has to be the God man 
um, for it to, um, you know, to, to supply the, the strength, the victory to overcome, um, for it to be infinite punishment. Uh, that's a, um, such a rich doctrine that, uh, our catechism has. Turretin, Italian. Italians are good for more than pasta, and they're good for more than just being loud in general assembly halls. They're good for really good theology too, aren't they? Take that, Fred. And I love, um, well, I love, I love both both of those those quotes you gave. They they, I mean, they just blow us out of the water with their profundity. I love also what our what our erstwhile companion uh, Voss helps us understand here on this matter as well, because sometimes maybe you guys have heard this as well. There's there's this hypothetical that's thrown out there. I mean, usually someone asks it not to be uh, irritating or provocative. I mean, maybe they do, but but just out of theological curiosity, they'll say, could could someone else have done it? I mean, even imagine if God had made, by some miracle, a sinless man, a sinless human. Could they have been, like, a, like another Adam, like Adam 2.0, so to speak, um, could that have been a stand-in? Could that have been a mediator uh, to be the sacrifice for sin, to, to bear the penalty in our place? And and Voss unequivocally says no. Um, just a few a few lines from his his commentary here. Why not an ordinary human being like Moses or David or Paul? Could they be a mediator to save the human race from sin? He says no. All ordinary human beings are themselves sinners and therefore would be disqualified from the work of saving others from sin. Those who are themselves in need of salvation cannot accomplish the salvation of others. Okay, so that's why Moses or David couldn't do it. But what if there was, by some miracle, another sinless human being like a new Adam? Well, Voss says even a sinless human being, if merely human, if merely human, would not have been able to endure the wrath and curse of God as Christ did. It was necessary that the mediator be God in order to sustain and support his human nature in his temptations and sufferings. And of course, what Voss is saying there in summary, Turretin and Perkins have already fleshed out for us in greater detail. Even Adam 2.0 would not have been enough. Adam was merely human. He was not the God-man. He was made the image of God. He was God's vice regent, but he was not the God-man the way our Lord Jesus Christ was. And to piggyback off this, I, I highlighted those same two questions in Voss's commentary, Sean, and I thought it was so profound because I think the emphasis here is that the second Adam could not have been only man because the second Adam could not have offered the passive obedience that was required for our salvation. A second Adam could have offered the active obedience and I can't remember if we talked about this on the show or not yet, but certainly it's coming up. Christ's active obedience is his keeping the law of God in thought, word, and deed his whole life long. Personal, perpetual, perfect obedience. That's active obedience. Passive obedience is his wrath-incurring sacrifice, his taking the guilt and the punishment of our sin upon himself. And so it seems that what Voss is emphasizing and I really had to consider before studying for this, and so I, I find this a great exercise, is that a second Adam, yeah, could have offered active obedience in the same way that the first Adam could have. There was no defect in his nature. God gave him the covenant of works, and it was possible for him to perfectly keep the law. But even Adam, as he was constituted in that garden, being only a man, how could a finite man suffer infinite wrath. And, you know, this leads us to the next idea as well, that because man is finite, there's also a limitation on how many persons he could substitute himself for. Um, so the, the first, and for those of you that maybe have a copy of the larger catechism close by, kind of dividing the question by the semicolons. So his divine nature helps to keep his human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. Christ was resurrected. But Christ also needed to be God so that he could give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and his intercession. What do y'all think about that? Uh, that, we could go on the rest of the episode just on this one, but it, he could give worth. So is that to say that Christ's death was worthless? according to his humanity? Um, what are they trying to emphasize here? I think that what's in view here has to do with his being the son, uh, with his being 
one who has access to the Father, relationship with the Father, that his death has worth because of that. It has has worth because of the long and unimpeded, uninjured relationship between the Son and the Father. I think that undergirds the language of obedience and intercession here. It's really good. Well, the beauty of his person as the second, I mean, how much more worth, how much more worthwhile or valuable could his sacrifice be were he not the second person of the Trinity? That's a great point. Because I, I don't want to think that Westminster is intending to articulate any insufficiency in his humanity for the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Yeah. It, it's humanity that bears up the wrath of God. And it is particular, as we're going to see in the next question, um, it's particular to our humanity. It's It has become a superhumanity because it's it's joined together, yet not mixed with his divinity. Um, yeah, you don't I, want to make I, him a superhuman, like, you know, no, yeah. together, you know, and make it do some kind of like Nestorian, or not Nestorian, uh, Eutychian, I guess. We believe in one person, two natures, right? Um but he also, his humanity was perfect. So this idea of giving worth, like in how so? I Like you know, I, think I think you hit it, Nick. I think worth, obedience, and intercession indicate to us that relationship. So worth is of the value of the eternal son of God wrapped in flesh. He's not only the son of God in his divinity, his eternal subsistence with the father, um, but likewise also in his humanity. He is uniquely the son of God. Uh, his obedience according to his sonship. Uh, he's not about his own business, but about the business of his father. Christ repeats this at various places in the gospel again and again and again. But it's all bound on the relationship. He knows what the father delights in, and he knows it with a personal, sweet, uh, intimate knowledge that only a son can know. And so his obedience is not uh, obedience in suggestion. It's not obedience like we would sometimes try to give obedience. I mean, you look at the church. The obedience of spiritual disciplines that you see in the church, uh, so many of them we look at and say, well, those monastic um, attempts at obedience are actually disobediences. I mean, we've seen that in the church repeatedly. Um, and then intercession. You know, w- what is the worth and efficacy of the intercession of Christ? Well, uh, it's because the Father hears him. Uh, he He is the one who has always had... Uh, the relationship of access with the Father, because he and the Father are one God, yet separate persons. So there's, at least to me, uh, a a real relationship here regarding the Sonship of Christ. Efficacy, that's a larger question. Why do they add that in? Uh, That's where you kind of get down the the rabbit trail. Uh, Is it efficacy because he understands uh, particularly the mind of God, and so his sufferings have more efficacy that way, because again, we're talking about the passive obedience of Christ, at least in part, regarding his suffering. So then jumping into this next clause, uh, and the power of death, semicolon, and then we're in this next clause, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. And again, this is why he needed his godness. You needed, and here we're, we're going to get into Hebrews, we're thinking of Christ acting as our great high priest, his high priestly intercession, his obedience, you need a high priest to do those things, but that merely human high priest would never be sufficient. It would never be enough. You need the godness undergirding the humanity to give the worth and efficacy. That's great that you got, you know, Mr. Marvelous high priest in Jerusalem offering sacrifices and praying night and day and, and living an exemplary life. But no matter how exemplary, it would never be enough. All that obedience, all that interesting would never be enough without the godness doing it. Uh, undergirding it. Uh, this is why Hebrews 7, or excuse me, Hebrews, but yes, chapter 7 and chapter 9, but the whole letter of Hebrews goes to such lengths to to draw out these implications, and it goes into such painstaking detail to help us understand and 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 emphasize this. For those of you at home who have your Voss commentary, if you consult it or as we consult it, you'll notice that there's a lot of proof texts, <laughs> both in the in the catechism itself and as well as in, in Voss's commentary uh, from Hebrews here at this point, and fittingly so, because we're thinking about the, the godness and the humanity united in, in this mediator, this great high priest. 
Here, here's a few scripture verses for you from Hebrews 7, 25 through 28. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So there's there's at least part of it, of what's giving worth and efficacy to this suffering's obedience and, and intercession. Well, <laughs> It's the perfection of the God nature, two natures in one person, uh, upholding and sustaining the humanity uh, in this mediator that we have. Yeah, and going to the book of Hebrews, you'll see as well, Hebrews 10, verses 15 to 17, and then 25. uh, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, he's not a priest after the order of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. And by virtue of this indestructible life, verse 25 says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives with this indestructible life to make intercession for them. We need a priest that was signaled to us. It was communicated to us in the types and shadows of the Aaronic priesthood, but we need a priest that wouldn't die. We need a priest who had an indestructible life and could intercede for us forever. And this is where, you know, his indestructible life, um, Mm -hmm. by virtue of the union of the human nature to the divine, his divine nature can't die. And so he ever lives. Yeah. Yeah. Immortal. He ever lives to intercede for us. And yeah, we, we need him to be God. We need him to be God. So Jesus as a carpenter didn't wear Levi jeans. I would expect a question like that from Sean Morris, not from you, Derek. That was my best Sean Morris impression. Like he always gets the good ones. So I, I immediately was like, he's rubbing off on me, I think, because I immediately thought of that. And I was like, man, this is a Sean Morris question. Yes, indeed. You heard it here first, folks. That's right. The mediator must be man in order to that he might suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. That's what we're going to get more so into uh, in in the in next week's question, but the mediator must be God in order to satisfy God's justice. I know we've already sort of moved past that clause, but I thought it would be worth dwelling on even for just a few seconds. Um, sin is infinitely offensive, no matter how minuscule the sin. Infinitely offensive against an infinitely holy God, and therefore deserves infinite punishment. Well. As we've just been thinking about this immortal, invisible, only wise God, who else could bear up the penalty of offending God's justice if it's an infinite punishment? Or if it's infinitely offensive and worthy of infinite punishment, who else could bear up that penalty other than one who is infinite himself, uh, namely God? God must satisfy God's justice. This, there's mystery here, and we're bordering on the edge of inexplicability, and the and we're 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 butting up against the limitations of human language here, and so we come we come to a point where we have to say that thus far the scripture speaks, but we can say no more, and we confess mystery, and we we fall over and and bow down in adoration and wonder. The catechism gives us helpful uh, categories and, and and a frame of language by which to articulate it, but by no means do we claim to exhaustively understand it. Uh, but that is part of what the Catechism is helping us uh, understand here, that the mediator must be God in order to satisfy the justice of God. <laughs> Procure his favor and purchase a peculiar people. Now, I know y'all are peculiar, and I know that there's a lot of peculiar people in the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the way we use peculiar is not the way that the Catechism is using the word peculiar in the sense of strange or odd or unusual or weird, although, like I said, there, there, there are a few, and we some of them are here on this show today, are a few strange, odd, and, and weird people. But the, 
mediator must be God in order to procure God's favor and to purchase a peculiar people. What would you like? What, what do you all think about those two phrases? What, what sort of implications and applications should we draw out from that? Well, I would just say that um, the doctrine of Christ as mediator is again this a part of an airtight system that the confession and the catechisms um, uh, put forth for us. Christ is suffering, he's living, suffering, dying, and interceding for a particular people. So his work as, and and Nick mentioned this earlier, right, that this is for the elect. There's a one-to-one correlation, right, in the sense that Christ's life, um, his act of obedience is imputed to those for whom it was intended. His substitutionary death was, um, it made satisfaction for those for whom it was intended. He intercedes for who, right? I mean, it would not make sense, right, for Christ to come live and die for um, everyone uh, without exception and then make intercession for what? Is his intercession failing? That doesn't make any sense, right? He's No, he's interceding for the elect and his intercession is successful. And he is purchasing a particular people. And and you can actually see this in like John 17, for example, in the high priestly prayer um, and the, the language that John uses um, or actually that Jesus uses in the gospel of John about how, um, you know, I, pray, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those you've given me out of the world. Um, or you go, can go to John chapter six where um, Jesus says, um, you know, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And if you follow the train of thought in John chapter six, you can see that those that the father gives are those that the father that, that are raised up rather on the last day. Um, again, it's a one-to-one correlation. And so Christ came to redeem a particular people. Um, they are love gifts from the father to the son. And, uh, and, and really it's following Old Testament, uh, I think, patterns here, right? There was an Old Testament covenant people and Christ is coming as um, the new covenant, uh, you know, instituting the new covenant, coming for a new covenant people. And um, yeah, it's just beautiful. And I know sometimes it can rub people the wrong way, but um, it, it's not to be, it's, it shouldn't cause you to go, oh, what is that? I mean, why is it so peculiar? Why is it so particular? Why is it so, but what it should do is, is really cause you to go, oh, our savior is so thorough and our savior is so efficient and sufficient and our, he saves all he intends to. Our savior does not fail. Mm-hmm. He does not lose a one of them, but he, he saves all he intends to. He, he actually, he actually doesn't fail one bit. Mm. Not one person can resist him. That's amazing. Um, and so his work of mediation is is to the T perfect. Yes. And don't you love that language of procure favor? Because you can't have favor unless the disfavor is removed. And so the death, the, the satisfaction of the mediator as God to remove God's disfavor upon those sinners whom he has set his love upon. And and I love even, it's so subtle that it can almost be missed, but I love how the, the deliberate choice of language um, here that the, that the divines have used that to procure his favor. Because what, what a reminder that is, is that when you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone, It's not merely a bare pardon for your sins and offenses against God, although that in of itself would be cause for infinite praise on our account. But you've not just been brought into a neutral status before God of, oh, you were unrighteous, you were his enemy, he's removed that offense, so now you're brought back to square one. You're, you're, you're brought back to that starting point. You're, you're in a neutral status before him. No, it's, it's, it's even more glorious than that. Perry McCall. Favor. You've been moved out of disfavor and not to neutral, or God's not ambivalent toward you, 
but he is have a positive disposition of favor towards you. The almighty God of heaven and earth who once was at enmity with you now has a positive disposition of favor and love and affection towards you. Why? Because God the mediator, the God-man mediator, has procured that favor unto you. I mean, that, that, that clause alone will preach. It's a marvelous clause, and I'm so glad that the divines included it there, uh, that's that phrase there, I mean, in, in the catechism question. Well, just to jump in real quick, because I think Nick probably has something to say, but I'm going to cut him off. Um, uh, is, it's your anniversary, uh, Derek. You can do what you want. It should make you think about the baptism of the, our Lord, right? Where he hears the Father speak, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And if you're united to the son and you're made a son in the son, then there's a very real sense that that could be said of you, right? It doesn't mean, of course, that we can never displease the father. Okay. I'm, I'm not an antinomian or anything, but there's a very real sense in which we are because we're in the son and united to him that the father is pleased with us. And um, I think more people should need to hear that. You know, Sean walks us back to a really good spot here. Whenever he touches about the procuring of the favor of God, the, the phrase right prior to it is to satisfy God's justice. And this is language that the church has largely looked away from, or at least ignored um, in the past number of years. And it's because we've replaced it. We've replaced the satisfaction language of the church uh, to be focused not particularly with the justice of God, but rather the wrath of God. And so in this question, we've actually got both of them. So earlier in the, in the answer, uh, we have uh, the, uh, the divinity of Christ keeping the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. And then here later, the satisfaction of God's justice. And I think there's an important point that needs to be made. Uh, now, n- to say nothing of the hymn, In Christ Alone, it's wonderful, it's a helpful hymn, it's one that I think is really a standout hymn, especially among modern songs, uh, but there's that little quirk, the, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, not really. In, in, in the cross, the wrath of God was endured, it was poured out. Uh, the, the satisfaction of God has to do with his justice, a very definite sentence uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this fa- satisfaction of the wrath of God, a sentence that can be um, completely fulfilled. Uh, and what's being said in this in this uh, answer here is particularly that Christ uh, paid or Christ endured the sentence, okay? Uh, the, the things that God had held out against us, which were definite according to definite sins, our sins are not infinite, though his wrath may be infinite because it's holy, um, the, the particular sentence uh, has a, a real, uh, knowable, understandable uh, body, and, and that, to put it into one word, would be death, okay? Um, the satisfaction of God's justice is that he requires death of all those who have sinned against him. Uh, and why can Christ procure his favor? Well, because the justice of God has already been done for us. There's now then no longer any enmity. Uh, there, there's nothing between us and him. There's no uh, lingering um, anger. There's no lingering thing that his justice would demand. Because remember, again, his justice is according to his eternal character of righteousness. It, it's something that not only flows from his perfection, but it also uh, vindicates his perfection as the holy God of heaven. Um, you know, it's, th- those two things are locked together. And so to have a God who's not just is to have a God who's not holy. And so there's this relationship here uh, at play within the, the answer of the larger catechism. That's great, Nick. And I think taking together both what you and Derek have said, that God's justice is satisfied. It brings my mind to Romans 8. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because he satisfied the Father's justice and taking our condemnation on himself. And when you look at all of the other things that he does, I mean, we can kind of hear the echo of how does Christ execute the office of a king? He conquers all of his and our enemies, and he brings us into everlasting salvation. 
it is a reminder to us that our salvation is guaranteed in a way that it would not be if the second mediator were only a man. But we have certainty because Jesus is God and man, Hmm. two distinct natures, one person. And according to that divine nature, he cannot fail. He cannot fall. His purposes cannot fall out. He's going to accomplish everything that the Father, Son, and Spirit had decided to do in eternity past. And so our salvation is secure because Christ is the securest one in whom our salvation could be placed. So when we talk about assurance of salvation, we're going to come to that as well. We have an infallible ground of assurance. And we have an infallible ground of assurance because we have an infallible and an immutably holy, righteous, we talked about this at last episode, an impeccable Savior. And so that's the only way that we can have this steadfast anchor for our soul because our soul's hope is not dependent upon performance or how we've been doing, whether we've kept up with our yearly Bible reading plan. Here we are in early January or early February, rather. We have an infallible ground of assurance because we have an infallible Savior. And Robert Mary McShane, he said it well. For every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, and this is the Christ you need to be looking at. This this one who's the mediator between God and man and is himself God and man. I'm not going to violate the second commandment because you tell me to look at an image of Jesus, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, In all and, fairness, it was Robert Murray McShane, so you got to take it yeah. up with him when you meet him in glory. Well, and, and also McShane said, you know, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I, I would not fear a thousand enemies. Yeah. And that goes back to Christ's intercession. And he says, yeah. but nevertheless, distance makes no difference. He prays for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's so good. And I, I love the section um, that he conquers all of our enemies. You know, first John three, eight, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Um, yeah. You know, if you were to ask, why did Christ come? You know, you would say, well, he came to redeem sinners. He came to die on the cross. And all those things are true, but he came to destroy the works of the devil. Yeah. And, um, and that's so rich and so helpful. And it makes me just think of, you know, especially drawing on Hebrews that Christ is the greater Moses. You know, he he's leading his people through a new exodus where he is killing all of that, which holds us into bondage, leading us through the waters of baptism, the waters of judgment, bringing us into the new land, the new the new Canaan, the new promised land. I mean, what a beautiful story, conquering all of our enemies. Um, you know, just a beautiful truth of what Christ is doing. And, 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 you know, we just have no, um, category for that right now. You know, we have no idea what glory awaits us and what freedom awaits us. Um, when we arrive in the new heavens and new earth and there's nothing, nothing left, uh, um, as far as sin and, and enemies go. It's going to be uh, just an amazing day. That's right. I, I love how how much, how pound for pound, dollar for dollar, inch for inch, how much theology the the divine are able to pack into uh, in, into such a compact statement. Give his spirit to them. Well, God gives his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to his people. The mediator is God, and so Jesus Christ is giving his Holy Spirit to his people as part of the the, the, the benefits of our salvation, the down payment, if you will, the, 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 the seal of that coming and full day of redemption, which, by the way, apologies to our friends in the East. Yeah, Jesus gives his spirit, right? The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So, sorry, got a part company there. Uh, you know, not BFS since 1054. And uh, so, but and the divines just slip that right in there that the the mediator being God gives His Spirit to them, conquering, conquer uh, as as Derek was was already meditating on conquering all their enemies. He conquered death and hell and sin and the devil, and he's even defending his church to this day. And he will vanquish and conquer all enemies, even on the last and glorious great day. Christ is ruling, defending uh, His church. He's conquering all His and our enemies. What a marvelous thought that is, and bringing us to the point, uh, bringing us to everlasting salvation. We have it now. We see it in a, we, we, in, in a, in a glass dimly, uh, as, 
as the word says, we don't fu- in a, through a glass darkly, we don't fully comprehend it, but we possess it now. We shall possess it forever. It's everlasting salvation. Uh, we've, we've been going for nearly an hour here, but this is just such a chock full uh, question. Number 38 is so full of glorious doctrine, glorious theology, soul-comforting uh, theology, uh, which again, I know we've said it before, but it's worth repeating that it just puts the lie, I think, to the allegation that the Westminster Larger Catechism or the Westminster Standards is a product of some sort of cold, aloof, scholastic theology. Now, this is doctrine for the soul. It really does. It, and it really serves that purpose, and it really uh, does do that to the comfort of God's people. And as we wind down, I want to leave our listeners with a quote from one of the church fathers, Melito of Sardis, dating from around the year 180. On these accounts he came to us, on these accounts, though he was incorporeal, he formed for himself a body after our fashion, appearing as a sheep, yet still remaining the shepherd, being esteemed a servant, yet not renouncing the sonship, being carried in the womb of Mary, yet arrayed in the nature of his father, treading upon the earth, yet filling heaven, appearing as an infant, yet not discarding the eternity of his nature, being invested with a body, yet not circumscribing the unmixed simplicity of his Godhead, being esteemed poor, yet not divested of his riches, needing sustenance inasmuch as he was a man, yet not ceasing to feed the entire world inasmuch as he is God, putting on the likeness of a servant, yet not impairing the likeness of his father. He sustained every character belonging to him in an immutable nature. He was standing before Pilate and at the same time was sitting with his father. He was nailed upon the tree and yet was the Lord of all things. Friends, thank you once again for joining us as we've taken up the topic of the natures of Christ and his mediatorial work in question 38 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's our hope that you've been encouraged in your walk with Christ and challenged to think deeply about Christ and his regular ministry to us and for us. We hope you'll join us next week as we take up question 39. Why is it requisite that the mediator should be man? Until then, this has been Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.